1 Corinthians, we'll read verses 1 through 11, verse, chapter 15, and then we're going to land on verses 8 through 10. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which, you, which also you received, and indeed also you stand, by which also you are saved, if... You hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as first importance that I also received that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And He was buried and He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And He appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve. After that, He appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, to one untimely born. He appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles. I am not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me did not prove vain. I labored more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it is I or they, so we preach... And so you believed. Father, give us ears to hear and eyes to see the understanding of your resurrection. Lord, um, the evidence is overwhelming. Father, but I think what happens is that we miss the power that is also overwhelming. Father, let us draw now to your grace. Let us draw now to your truth. Let us draw now to your word Fellowship of the saints to the glory of the risen King in Christ's name. Amen. The Apostle Paul moving into chapter 15 takes the first 11 verses and gives proof of the resurrection. And I'm going to tie this all up in a great big package and you'll see it next week. But the key that you need to understand is, is that this is not a doctrinal issue. This is not what Paul's saying. He says here, the gospel which I preach, you received and you stand. It isn't like they had a doctrinal problem with this. But what had happened is, is that the society had slowly crept in. And as it was creeping in, it was bringing their philosophies, their thinking. I, I, when I was in Russia just this last trip, I, I taught First Corinthians. And, 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 and it, the book deals with problems in the church. Please understand, the Corinthian church is a church. I mean, if you had walked into it, you may not have thought so, but it was a church. It was a body of believers, but what had happened is their society had slowly come in. And let's be realistic. If you get saved later in life, let's say, I think about myself. I was not raised in a Christian home. Okay, I was not exposed to the gospel. I mean, I, I believe the Bible. I kind of run life to the edge, but I just looked around and said, you know, it's obvious there's a God. You can't tell me this is an accident. And I think he created all this for me to have a blast. And that was my theology. Now, when I get saved, what has changed in my theology? I still think this place is a blast. 
what do you mean in this life you'll have tribulation? Well, why would I want that? Oh, never mind. I had tribulation before I got saved. Oh, oh, yeah. But now I have hope. Okay? Here's the problem with the Bible today. Okay? And I have preached in a number of different places outside of the United States. And this problem is still the same whether you're going to a translator in Russia, whether you're dealing with South Africa, whether you're preaching in Israel. The problem is still the same. There are things in this book that does not fit our logic, does not fit our desires, and does sort of make us uncomfortable. But it doesn't make it less true. That's the problem. I just won't teach that. Bummer. Okay, ignore it. It'll go away. I had a man throw a book at me one time when I read the text out of Romans that said, none seek after God. He threw the book. He says, I've always sought after God. Then mark that out of your Bible. Because I know for a fact, none seek after God. Now, people will want their conscience appeased, but they're not seeking God. They're creating God in their own image. This is how I want my God to be. I hear this. I hear this from pastors. I hear it from priests. I hear it from Christians. Well, my God's not like that. Well, your God probably isn't. But my God is the God of the Bible, and he don't really care about your opinion anyway. Oh, by the way, did you know he doesn't even ask you for your opinion? It's kind of, he's kind of mean that way. I mean, he is. I mean, now you take a text. I don't want you to marry an unbeliever. But what if he gets saved? Then marry him. But that seems so narrow-minded. Yeah. I have a list of people who are married to unbelievers. I'll let you speak with them. Okay? It doesn't make it any less true. It doesn't. Uh, you know, I've had couples that said that, you know, they want, believe that God, well, God's going to, wants us to get married. We believe that God has brought us together. Hallelujah. My next question. Are you sleeping together? Well, yeah. Well, you wouldn't know God's will if it walked up and introduced itself to you. This ain't rocket science. That's what he says. Okay, well, but this is the 2000s. We've gotten better. Sure we have. We've had more people murder more people in the 20th century than any time in the world. We've gotten better. Absolutely, we've gotten better. Shall we press it on? All right, so I want to lay that to you because when you think about church, look at what church has become. It, you know, ask a person today, did you worship? And they'll say, yeah. And you say, well, how do you know? And that always bugs them. But, well, the music was great. Does anybody know who led Paul's music? 
Do you know that Paul started preaching one morning, early in the morning, and went till midnight? Preaching. Try that. I walked from the University of Orel up to the church that I was staying in. It's about 10 miles, and I had these kids walking alongside me, asking me all kinds of questions about the Bible. One was saved, three were not, and we started from Genesis and went to Revelations. And then the next thing I knew, it was dark. And why was I walking 10 miles? They have buses and taxis and any other. Anyway, I was, you know, I got there and I, well, Lord, this is my weakness. You are strong. I'm wore out. Why, why didn't you carry me? I share this because there's text in the scriptures that I guarantee you, you read it and it will offend you. But it still don't make it not true. Okay. What was happening to the church in Corinth? They were buying the philosophy of man. You can check history. The philosophy of the Greeks was this. They didn't want a bodily resurrection. They wanted to just go be spirit with the deity. That's what they did. All of their religious systems were based on a plethora of gods and you could lose your mind or have some transcendental something or other or have some experience or get hammered out of your mind and go hang out with a deity. That sounds like the 60s. (laughs) Things have not changed. I mean, we created drugs. This will really make you see God or make you think you're God. Do you understand that? When I look at the church today, I mean, we we do demographic studies. We're going to go ask lost people what they want for a church and then we'll give them that. Who thought that up? Well, how are they going to get saved? Well, that ain't how they're going to get saved. I guarantee you. I mean, if we're going to put people in the seats, I know how to do that. Big screen TV, beer. You don't think it don't work? Go look at the Broncos. Ain't nobody putting 76,000 in every Sunday. See the one I'm trying to get at? So when you read this, we all sit there and say, well, is this a doctrine? No, he's dealing with practical issues. And he goes back to a foundational issue. Jesus Christ raised from the grave a bodily, physical resurrection. And we've been going through this. He says the fact that you are a church means that you believe in a bodily, physical resurrection. Or you ain't a church. I mean, he already said, I delivered to you of first importance. You know what that means, right? First importance. You have to believe that. If you do not believe in a physical bodily resurrection, you ain't saved. And I don't say that to be mean. Listen, I've been in his grave. He ain't there. And listen, you go to Israel, they've got a church or a monument for everything that ever happened. I mean, they got the church of the transfiguration. They got the church of the sermon on the mount. They got the church for this. They got a church for that. This is, this is where Peter's house is. Well, we don't want you to desecrate it. So the Catholics build a church that it doesn't even touch the ground. It does. It flows. It looks like a spaceship. And it's over Peter's house. Oh, great. 
You go into town. They have the church of the upper room. They have the church where David did, thought was buried. But we know David ain't buried there because it was over on the old city. But And they got all of this stuff. Okay? And you can go to the church of the holy sepulcher. And guess what? They stand in line to go in. And there ain't nobody in there but these people going in and out and in and out. They took a saw and they cut the stone out where his body would have laid. And they lay it out there and people line up to kiss it. Yuck. All right? Do you see what I'm trying to get at? He ain't there. And the truth is, because you're in a church today, says that it was a bodily, literal resurrection. You can't take a bunch of cowards who deny him and flee and turn the world upside down within 40 days and they preach even if you kill them, they don't stop. And yet when they were walking with him, they denied him. What causes a man to change that way? Well, a bodily resurrection. The fact that you are a church, even if you were in the church of Corinth. But he also says it was in the scriptures. We went through this. This is just review. It is written in the scriptures. You know what scriptures he's referring to, correct? Old Testament. The New Testament was in the process of being written. This is the first record, the oldest record we have of the resurrection. The gospels, the four gospels hasn't been written by the time 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians was written. And he says it's all over the scriptures. And I have gone through it. And you know what I found? I have not given you an exhaustive list. It is all over the place. It's in the Psalms. It's in the Proverbs. It's in the Kings. It's everywhere. Genesis speaks of it. Hosea speaks of it. Daniel speaks of it. They're all speaking of it. Now listen, let's be realistic. If I had the Old Testament, I don't have the New Testament, and somebody told me that somebody was going to die, be buried, and be raised from the dead, right. Okay? I've been around dead people. And it's nothing to do with the movie that I see dead people. I've been around dead people. I've never seen any of them get up. You know what? They don't even pay attention to you. But he got up according to the scriptures. Scriptures. And then you have the existence of the church and now you have the testimony of the scriptures and then you have the testimony of eyewitnesses. We did this message last week. First to Cephas. Cephas is Aramic. Okay, it means rock. Does anybody know what the Greek term for rock is? Peter. All right? No worries. Who? He appeared to Peter. Why? He wanted to show Peter how gracious and loving he was. Who denied him? Three times. And here's the weird thing about Peter. Peter was warned it's coming. Twice. I've warned you. You will deny me. Now, if all others deny you, I'll even if they kill me. Oh, Peter, did I tell you? Satan has asked to sift you to see what would blow away. Don't worry, Peter. I prayed for you. Okay? Gee, thanks. Okay? But then he makes this statement. 
once you've been restored, you can help the saints. Okay, you know what that means, right? It was, it was an ugly blowing party, and it didn't work. When he blew and was sifted, what was left? Nothing. A crushed man. And so he appeared to Peter. Then it says he appeared to the apostles. He's in there in the upper room. They're all hiding out. Bunch of chickens. They just killed your boss. Let's all hide. When are they going to come? Then there's poof. Peace be with you. And it says they were fearful. Really? If I'm standing in the upper room thinking that the whole world is trying to kill me and all of a sudden, boom, Jesus is standing in the middle of us. I'm fearful. I'm worse than them. I'm leaving. I mean, I'll go out even if they're in a door. Okay? And then he appeared to 500. So he's got 513 witnesses. Eyewitnesses. Okay? Old Testament says you only need two or three. God sort of overdid that one. Kind of overboard. I mean, let's be realistic. You take a court of law in the United States today and you run 500 witnesses through there we would know whether O.J. was guilty or not. Or whatever else you want to think about. Do you understand that? But then, in verses 8 to 10, it's an interesting add-on. He had James, his brother, half-brother, was also there, a family member, the first pastor of the church in Jerusalem. And then he adds this. I want to show you a word. And last of all, okay, he's been given us almost categories of witnesses. And now he gives a whole other category of witness. All right? This witness that he gives now is a Christian killer. He kills Christians. That was his job. That was his passion. That was his calling. He says here, last of all, and then he says, as to one untimely born or out of due time, depending on your translation. He says, the least of the apostles. He says, I'm not even fit to be called an apostle. Why? Because I persecuted the church. Okay, so now, you know, James had denied him as a brother. I showed you that. And the Gospel of John says that James says, Come on home, Jesus. You're making a fool of yourself. But the resurrected Christ called James, and now he's the first pastor of the first church ever. That has power. Okay, now you've got a different level of unbeliever. You've got an unbeliever who literally persecutes the church. Who persecutes the church. That's kind of a different level of unbelief. Isn't it? I think it is. But I want to show you a little phrase here that that bothers me this day. Verse 8 right there. And last of all. Okay. Literally, it means I'm the last to see him. Okay. Now, Peter says this, whom having not seen you love, Jesus Christ, speaking of Jesus Christ. There are people in this room right now who love Jesus Christ. And I'll be honest with you, I've never seen him. 
Okay, and I don't go with the pictures. Okay, the, the hippie looking dude. I don't think that was him. Okay, um, I have multiple reasons, but I just don't think nobody took a snapshot. It was me and Jesus. Okay, um, we don't have that. You don't have any kind of drawing whatsoever of what he looks like. I can tell you that Isaiah says he was nothing to behold. He didn't stand out in a crowd. Okay. But Paul says, I am the last to see him. That's a literal phrase in the original language. How does that set with all those who are claiming to see him? Somebody there's lying. Either Paul or the people claiming to see Jesus. I'm going with Paul. Nothing personal. I'm not trying to pick a fight or anything like that. I just feel better with him. When did Paul see him? Acts chapter 9 on his way to Damascus. He reveals himself to the apostle Paul. And do you understand what Paul's response is? This is the thing that bothers me about the people who claim to see Jesus. Lord, what would you have me do? You got that? He's on the way to do what? Arrest Christians. And Jesus says, why are you persecuting my church? No. Why are you persecuting me? And his response was a very intelligent response. What do you want me to do? It gives a whole new meaning to repentance, doesn't it? Paul saw him. Paul was blinded. He was not blinded in darkness. He was blinded by the light. It's kind of like what I call looking into the sun. S-O-N. S-O-N. The least of the apostles. I'm not even fit to be called. Now, there's a phrase right after that. Last of all, in the New American Standard, this translation calls it one untimely born. ta Ectroma, ta ectroma. And it's an interesting word here. One untimely born. I mean, you take it back to the original language and you scratch your head and think, what? How did we translate this bugger this way? Because it literally means a premature birth. It means an aborted fetus. One untimely born. I saw him... And I felt like a miscarriage. Now, you listen to the great theologians and they come up, well, what is he trying to articulate here? Well, it means he was born too soon. In relation to the other 12 apostles, I can see where you can try to get that in there. Or... In relation to the other 12 apostles, he was born too late. It was untimely. It was either too early or it was just too late. Or it was born at the wrong time. Or Paul could have been saying, you know what? When it comes to the apostle, I'm the worst. I'm the ugliest. I am what would be a discard of humanity. The definite article is in here. And that's interesting because it may be that that's what some called him. 
He walked away from the Pharisees and you are therefore a miscarriage. I know that he was hated for the gospel of grace because it countered work systems of the law. I think that it is all of that. I think that Paul looked at himself and Christianity as useless. He was despised. He was distrusted. I believe he was ugly too. You can't stone somebody and haul them out on a pile of manure and them not have some kind of altering looks. It's not like you could go down to Baghdad and get you a plastic surgeon. And he says, I am so hated, I am so despised, I am so ugly, I wasn't even born at the right time. Now, I want you to think about this because I have watched one of the worst things that I've ever seen. I have this flaw in my character that I love history. Uh, Some people think history. Anyway, I love history. And I have this flaw over it. And when I look at the history of the church, one of the greatest things that I have seen go wrong is what we do to grace. Watch what he says. I am the least of the apostles. He appeared to me also the ugliest of the apostles, a one who was a miscarriage, one who would be defiled, one who would be a cast off to humanity. I am the least of the apostles. I am not even fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church. I saw him. I am the least. Can you imagine what a burden he carried? Can you imagine all of those that he persecuted that loved Jesus were now his brothers? No, I want you to ponder that for a minute because he talks about God's grace in light of that. You think about that. He was holding the coats When Stephen was stoned, he took great joy in watching the death of a Christian. He celebrated it. He had a zeal for it. He persecuted the church. It was his emphasis, his calling, his meaning for life. And he did it because they loved the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. People throw that around all the time, don't they? You know, I, I am what I am. And they use it like an excuse. Do you understand the context? I killed Christians. I took great enjoyment out of it. And yet God's grace overwhelmed me and redeemed me in spite of that. And so we go flip it around going, well, I am, but I am. And what did you just do with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ? 
I do not know how a person could even use that phrase, knowing its context and what he was saying. He says, when it comes to humanity, I am the, the defiled. I am the cast off of humanity. And yet his grace overcame that. I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain. There's that word again. It did not prove empty. Empty. It proved committed, actually. And if you're really honest with yourself, when you toss around God's grace, all I have to say is how committed to you are you? I mean, we want to say, I am saved by grace. Absolutely. Are you committed to it? Or do you have a faith that is empty? I already showed you this. We looked at this a few weeks ago, actually before I left for Russia. What is true faith? What is true faith? He understands I am what I am because he understands that's a sovereign thing. Because let me tell you something about God's sovereignty. That freaks us out. It means God does whatever God... Yep. He's God, you're not. But if that's true, then how big is grace? Well, it's unmerited favor. Uh Uh-huh. From the sovereign of creation. The one who holds existence into being. I was watching the news this week and that some guy has got pictures of aliens now and wants to start a government uh, something in Denver to prepare to greet them. We need to get rid of cordless microphones. We just don't need to be sticking these. What do you think? Oh, okay. Um, anyway, they, they showed a little picture and E.T.'s little eyes looking over his window. And I looked at it and said, right on. And all of a sudden, a conversation comes up. He says, do you believe in extraterrestrials? Absolutely. Bible teaches them. They go, really? Yep. Angels. But they don't have flying saucers. Now, they may be throwing Frisbee and you think it's a flying saucer, but it's just an angel. Do we understand that kind of stuff? I share that because it is still a sovereign thing. Uh, we, we got a thing on Mars now that's digging dirt. <laughs> and we're going to find life or water or, and all the rest of it. I mean, we're worried about global warming. Have anybody seen the atmosphere on Mars? Well, what if there is water up there? I I don't know. Oh, my God, Lord, please hurry. Because if he is who he says he is, then unmerited favor, really? That may be the least definition you can get of it because he says, I was a persecutor of the church. I was the cast off of humanity. I was a defilement and his grace saved me. Even what I am, he saved me. That's grace. That's grace. Now, let me ask you a question. If that grace can save you, then why are you struggling today? 
enough to save me. He just can't handle what's going on on the planet Earth. Really? I was reading a book about a guy named Mel Trotter. If you can find anything on his biography or anything like that, it'll move you. Okay, Mel Trotter give a whole new meaning to drunk. Okay. He spent his money so fast that when his daughter came down with pneumonia, he took the penicillin and sold it so he could get more alcohol. She died. And they got ready to bury her and he stole her clothes and sold them so he could get drunk. Okay? But you know what? Mel tried to learn something. That God is no respecter of men and he saved him and he became one of the greatest evangelists in England. Why? God is sovereign. And His grace is unmerited. Paul is sitting here saying, you know what? The grace of Jesus Christ stopped me and His grace was so powerful, He made me an apostle. Definite article. So His grace was not in vain. It was not empty. And he says, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but what? The grace of God. What I'm doing for the Lord Jesus Christ right now is purely His grace. Now let me tell you something, brothers and sisters. This one here has got a burr in my saddle. And I don't even like saddles. Because I watch people who believe they're serving Christ and if they don't get their outcome, they walk away from it. And how do you do that if it is His grace that saved you and it is His grace that works through you and then look what it did with Paul and now you think he should be rewarded how? Then it's no longer grace. See what we've done with grace? It's not a big issue, is it? Why? I worked for Jesus. I did this thing for him and nobody ever came and and I quit. Paul did not just accept God's salvation. He gave his life to fulfill God's will. Because he understood the one untimely born understood emphatically what he did wrong and how massive the grace was bestowed upon him to even just to save him. Why didn't he strike him dead on the road to Damascus? It would have had the same effect on the church. But God said, I will not only save you, I will empower you to be an apostle to the Gentiles and you will give the new definition of what an evangelist church planter truly is. You ever wondered, have you guys ever run into people that you wondered sometimes God's grace was sort of in vain? 
um, I have a term for them, and I beg your forgiveness if it offends you, but it's sort of, in my life, it's sort of what I call them spiritual flakes. Um, they never do anything. I mean, even a divisive Christian is at least doing something. <laughs> that sounds awful, doesn't it? But they are. Not Paul. Not Paul. And you know what's amazing about this text right here? He says, the resurrection is true because look at the scriptures, look at the witnesses. I mean, Cephas first, he denied Christ. And I mean, Luke's gospel said that when Jesus was being brought across the, uh, the, the, the area there, between Caiaphas and Annas' house, uh, his third denial, Jesus made eye contact with Peter. That ought to have been pleasant. Okay? I mean, right there would make you have to have professional help. Okay? And here he is dead now, and I don't have an opportunity to reconcile my denial of you. And uh, You have his half-brother, James, who had to have heard... The miracles, walking on water, raising the dead, feeding of 5,000, feeding of 4,000. And my crazy brother, you know, that firstborn, geez, taking this thing way too serious. And you know what? People would say, well, those 500 disciples, I see how this works. Peter would have had to do it because he felt like a heel. James has got to believe in a bodily resurrection because the dude's got a job. He's the first pastor. He's, you, I've had people tell me, well, you have to believe that. Why? You're a pastor. You can't teach something you don't believe. Sure you can. They call it politicians. They do it all over the place. It's absolutely. I see people do it all the time. Well, you have to believe, James. You're the first pastor. What do the critics do with Paul? Why would Paul believe? I'm making a good living. What are you going to do with this guy? He said he saw. And here's the thing about Paul saying he saw the resurrected Christ. He changed. He had his life shattered. That's tough for a skeptic to deal with Paul. Grace wasn't in vain. Faith wasn't in vain. It wasn't empty. He labored by the grace of God. He worked to the point of salvation, or worked to the point of exhaustion. Do you understand that? Let me ask you a question. How are you doing? Are you working for the Lord to the point of exhaustion? Yep. Every time I read the Bible, I fall asleep. Every time I get into prayer, I'm gone. But I'm just meditating on the Word and prayer. It literally means to stretch a muscle till you do damage to it.
I labor even more in all of them, yet not I. His grace toward me is not in vain. How do you turn a guy around who's killing Christians? How do you turn a guy around who's killing Christians and you turn him into the greatest apostle who ever lived? I mean, do you see the irony in that? That just freaks me out. I mean, it's one thing to get the guy saved. But I took the Christian killer and look at the fruit. Listen, if you're a Gentile today, do you know who bore you? Paul. If you're a Jew today, it's probably Paul anyway. But anyway. Only one way do you take a Christian killer, turn him around, and make him the greatest spokesman for the kingdom he was trying to destroy. And the only way to do that is he saw the living Christ. And let me tell you something. That dude, every single time. Now then I want you to think about something. On the road to Damascus, why are you persecuting me? Do you know the reason people are not getting saved today? They don't see Jesus. Where's Jesus? Manifestation of the church. When the church comes together, it manifests Christ. When it's coming together in the authority and the power of the scriptures and the moving of the Holy Spirit, it manifests Christ. But we have moved so far away from the Holy Book. We've moved so far away from what we've been called to. We don't look any different than anybody. And that's why Paul is dealing with this. Last thing I want you to think about. Okay, my my dear friend, Paul. He says, I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove in vain, and I labor more than all of them. But not I, the grace of God with me. Now, I've been talking about grace and how we've cheapened it. Okay? I mean, come, come forward and say a prayer. You'll be saved. Paul never taught that. You know what? Jesus never taught that. Peter never taught it. John never taught it. Okay? But I want you to think about something when it comes to grace. I don't even know if I can articulate this. Paul labored more than any. He worked to the point of exhaustion. He worked to stretch till he would do muscle damage in his labors. Do you know why? I can give you a reason that I guess guarantee that most people do never think about. Guarantee it. Because he taught three things over and over again. Faith, hope, love. Okay? But here's something a lot of people don't think about. What was the burden that the Apostle Paul carried knowing that he was going to get to see Stephen in heaven and spend eternity with him, knowing that he held the coats and was cheering on the stoning? What was he going to do when he seen the mother and the daughter and the child that he had arrested and killed because of their love for Jesus Christ? What was he going to do with all of the blood of the saints that he would eventually see them for eternity in heaven? What's he going to do with that? 
the people whose lives he cut short because they had a love for a Savior because he was untimely born. Gives you a different view of grace, doesn't it? He did not accept this grace. He took it and he ran with it. And he labored with that grace because he knew what was due him. And now let me tell you something. If you've ever been angry, Jesus said, you are a murderer just like Paul. But his grace saved us and his grace empowers us. And Paul says his grace is so powerful because I saw the resurrected Christ and I am what I am. Now, you can be skeptical about the bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul wasn't skeptical. And to take the 12 and watch them, 40 days, Peter, who denied him three times, runs right in their faces and says, you are murderers of Messiah. How you do that if the guy's dead? But it's even worse to take a man who went out and killed Christians, arrested Christians, took great pleasure in doing it, and then all of a sudden he comes the greatest spokesman for that group. I know one way that you can get that done. A physical, bodily resurrection. And if he's raising Jesus from the dead which he has. The problem you have in life is what? Now I have people tell me that, well, I look at the church and it just doesn't look like Jesus. You know what my response most of the time is? Then show me what it's supposed to look like. Okay? I try to get people to understand. I am a pastor. That means I'm a shepherd. I am not your leader. I have oversight, but I know who owns the church. This is not my church. Okay? It is Christ's church. And I do not ask people to come under my authority. I ask people to come and walk with me. That's all. And there's times you'll be out in front of me. There's times that you'll be behind me. But I prefer it with for shoulder to shoulder. Because you know what? We all get to see. And we should take great hope. I've done some terrible things in my life. I've never killed Christians. Thought about it. But I haven't acted on it. Some of you have done some terrible things too. But you know what? If his grace can take a murderer of Christians and turn him into an apostle, sign me up for it. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for my brother Paul. And Father, there's... Oh, Father, I long to see him. I long to see him. 
And yet, Father, you have us here for a time as this, to labor to your glory, to labor in your grace, to labor to your purpose, to labor to your will. Father, beginning with me, may I labor that way. And Father, may my brothers and sisters understand your grace a little more this day, understand the power of your resurrection, and Father, may they labor. Father, may none this day have a faith that is in vain. May none this day be empty. Father, help us. Overwhelm us. And lead us in the way of righteousness. Lead us in the way of our Savior. And lead us to your glory. Amen.